tonight in Luke chapter 2, just kind of continuing on from the Christmas narrative. Uh, beginning in verse 39, uh, Luke's narrative shifts quite a bit. In fact, the contrast, as I was looking through that, was quite, uh, really quite striking. Um, and while you're turning there, I'll just kind of race through these. Um, but these are the combined descriptions of Jesus uh, from Luke and also share from Matthew and Mark as well. Uh, in Luke 2, 32 through 33, uh, Jesus is referred to or described as great, the son of the most high, heir of David's throne, eternal ruler over the house of Israel, ruler and sovereign of an unending kingdom, savior, Christ the Lord, God's highest glory and peace. In Luke 2, 35, he's described as the salvation of God, a light of the Gentiles, the glory of Israel, and Simeon says, a sign to be opposed. In Luke 2, 38, uh, Anna says he's Jerusalem's redemption. Uh, from Matthew, these are just basically the Christmas narratives. From Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, 21 and 23, he is Jesus, Savior of his people. He is Emmanuel, God with us. In Matthew 2, 1 through 12, he is King of the Jews, Messiah. Herod's, uh, at, that was Herod's inquiry, but he was referring to him as Messiah, Herod himself. Uh, ruler, shepherd of Israel, uh, from the house of Bethlehem or the house of bread, uh, Bethlehem meaning the house of bread. From John, uh, he is the true light. He is the word of God in human flesh. He is God. He is the only begotten of the Father. So those are taken directly from those three gospels. Uh, Matthew or Mark picks up really at the baptism of Jesus in the beginning of his ministry. So uh, I said that to, to point out the contrast because when we get to verse 39... He says this, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child, now he's going to talk about the child, continued to grow and became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to have been in the caravan, and they went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my, had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all things, all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so the reason I pointed out that contrast is because this one whom all the uh, Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, John, and Luke exalted and, and 
described as fulfilling the prophetic uh, role of the Messiah, Luke continues the narrative and all of a sudden this one is a child. In fact, in chapter 39, uh, he was still there at the very most. He would have been close to two years old, judging by the, when the Magi came and different ones, but uh, he was no older than that. But he says in verse 39 that having fulfilled all the requirements of the law in regards to the firstborn male and the son, uh, the circumcision and all the other things, uh, they returned to the Galilee, their own city of Nazareth. In verse 40, the child, <laughs> the child. And so when I read that, it was just like a big contrast to everything they've been describing and what we've been concentrating on, particularly during the Christmas season. And most often, I think, comes most easy for us is the deity of Christ. We say things like he is fully God and fully man. Uh, well, my thoughts tonight are centered around, well, why is that? Why is that necessary? Why is that important? Uh, and Luke goes right into this narrative that almost brings us down from this focus on his deity at the incarnation and all the glorious miracles that is and starts speaking of him as a child. Now, there are indications here that he's a very special child. <laughs> at 12 years old, he's in the temple and he's conversing with the religious leaders and the theologians of his day and he's, and he's listening to them. He's, I think he's learning from them and he's also asking them questions and they're, they're amazed at, the, at, as he, at his grasp of these things, obviously. But he's still portraying him uh, more fully, I think, in his humanity here. Luke's narrative begins to go in that direction. So I was thinking in regards uh, to this child, Luke 29, 39 through 52. So who is in his person, all that Matthew, this Jesus, who in his person is all that Matthew, Luke, and John declare him to be. But Luke goes directly to the only incident recorded of Jesus' childhood after, their, after those surrounding his birth and his first two years. So as I mentioned in verse 40, his concluding comment upon the completion of all the law required in regards to that firstborn son. And then he continues that narrative and picks it up with Jesus is at the age of 12, as I shared with you, beginning in verse 41. I wrote this, Luke's narrative provides some insight further, I think, regarding the incarnation. In other words, there is the glory of Emmanuel, God with us. We've talked a lot about the incarnation, but Luke continues with that narrative and I think reveals something more to us in regards to the incarnation. And the most surprising thing especially after our having focused on his deity is the two comments that he makes in verse 40 and then again in verse 52, which are Jesus continued to grow and become strong. I think speaking physically there, increasing, he says, in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now, verse 52, at the end of the narrative, he says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So the dilemma that that raises and, and its contribution to the incarnation is, is the fact that if he is fully God, then how can he increase in wisdom? And how can he, how can he grow in wisdom? I mean, he's omniscient, right? I mean, Jesus, we all believe and are convinced from the scriptures that he is fully God. So, so the dilemma for us when we read this and the reason it reflects upon the incarnation is because we've got a dilemma here. Because he is fully God, 
but now he's, he's taken upon himself flesh and we say he's fully man. So, so what's the balance in those? And you've heard me say this often and I say it because it's, it's deadly critical. Uh, Jesus was Jesus in his incarnation. Was he living out his life, uh, barring as it were from his deity to live life as a man? And that's critical to answer because I think that if he was, if he was doing that, then he's, 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 he's somewhat less than we are. Now, granted, Jesus didn't have any sin. He took upon himself the nature of man, but he didn't have any sin. So, so he's going to have capacities as a sinless man that we don't know of, we don't enjoy. We, we, it's alien to us because we're all born in sin. Now, there are certain things that certain behaviors and activities that he could do in regards and, and in discernment and insights that he would have just, just from the absence of sin. But, but to say that he's borrowing from his deity to support his humanity in that sense gets into some shady areas and some questionable areas in regards to his qualifications as a sacrificial lamb or a substitute for humanity or men. Now, I know that's, that gets complex. Maybe we can touch on that. But we know the word became flesh. But in this passage, Luke describes for us in an, in an introductory way what the miracle involves. It also sets in motion what the early church uh, had fierce debate over in regards to the very nature of Christ. Let me give you three words. Um, you may have heard one of these, but maybe not the other two, but hypostasis. Anybody ever heard of that phrase? That was the phrase the early church, um, even as early as the 200 years after Christ, began to weigh this out. Well, if he's fully God and he's fully man, what's the nature of that? And hypostasis simply means he, we, that's our translation. He is fully God and fully man, one person. It's, yeah, at once, at the same time. Not blended, not borrowing from one another. The deity doesn't borrow from the humanity. Humanity doesn't borrow from the deity. He's not a split personality in one body. He is one, but he is two natures. Uh, I read one commentator that described it this way. It is, the same, it is the same oneness that the Godhead enjoys, but they are distinct persons in the Godhead. Jesus is not, the, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, the Son and Father are not the Holy Spirit. They are distinct persons, yet they are one, completely in harmony. And so that gets into the question of the nature of Jesus. So they, the term is called hypostasis. It simply means two natures, one person, residing, dwelling in one person. That's human, humanity and his deity. The next word, because they saw some error here, is, was anhypostasis. The and is the negative. Uh, what they were arguing against there are those in that early church that said, well, well he, in, he inhabited a human body. In other words, theoretically, Mary could have been pregnant by, by Joseph and the embryo was already there and the Holy Spirit came over her and implanted, as it were, Christ, the Son, into an existing embryo. That's, that's why they came up with the second word, hypostasis. No, 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 no. They were saying that's not what happened. He didn't come and inhabit an existing body. He brought into existence the body. 
itself, the humanity that he would take up, that, that he would take upon himself. Now, this is important, by the way. He's not, the humanity of Jesus is not another person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. There, there was already a person. When the incarnation didn't give Jesus an additional person. The incarnation was Jesus eternally existing, taking upon himself humanity or human flesh. The fullness of human flesh. Not just a cloak of skin, but the mind of a human the, the, the flesh of a human, the experiences, the emotions, everything that humans endure or experience, he took that upon himself. But he, but he didn't become another person. And that's why it's important to say he's fully God, fully man, one person. Not, not a God and a human mixed together. He's God, he's Christ, he's the Son of God in human flesh, which he himself uh, by the power of the Spirit brought into existence in the miraculous conception uh, in Mary's womb. And the other word emphasizes that as well. I touched on this, but it's in, E-N, hypostasis. Uh, we translate that word, it's Latin, but we translate it in. It simply means in. And what he's saying there, and what that was arguing against, is that the two persons, the, the two natures are in one person. Because some people did think there was almost a dualism. There was a, there was a, a, a man and God, two people existing in one body. And so that was a heresy they were arguing against. No, 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 that's not true. There are two natures, but one person. The human, the human nature of Jesus was not, was not a different individual than the, de the deity of Jesus. He is one. And that's part of the mystery and the profound nature of the incarnation. Because if you say, well, how did he do that? I don't know. That's a miracle. There's no way that our minds can comprehend that. We have some analogies, though, and I think that's very critical in regards to the triune nature of God, but also in our union with him in salvation. And so there's some, there some corollaries, I guess, to that as well. So why, as I asked earlier, why then is it important, indeed necessary, that Jesus be fully man? Why is that necessary? And why was it necessary, by the way, for him to come in the, in the flesh, as it were, of a child? I mean, God created Adam grown. We don't have any indication that Adam was brought into the world from the dust and breathed nostrils into the life of an infant and then God nursed him individually until he grew to adulthood. God called him into existence as an adult. He could have done that with Christ. He could have just simply called Christ into existence from the dust of the ground or even from the womb of Mary and made some rapid uh, ascent to adulthood, sent him to the cross and got the whole thing done in five years. He didn't do that. In the, in the eternal plan of the Godhead, it was ordained that it should unfold in this way. But why was that necessary? And how, second question, and how was that manifested in one who is at the same time fully God? Now, turn with me to Hebrews because it's probably the most comprehensive, comprehensive uh, statement in regards to that. Hebrews chapter 10 is where I'll go first. Because I think it, it explains very clearly and somewhat concisely as to why. 
I'll read beginning in verse 1, but I'm, I want to concentrate on verse 5 and briefly following that. Speaking of the law, he says, For the law, since it is a, it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible, hear this, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, I want to be careful here because there's some people that say, well, it was sufficient under that disposition or or under that, uh, that dispensation or under that covenant. Well, this is a very, to me, this is a very conclusive statement. It was never sufficient. Now, was God granting mercy on the basis of what that was pointing towards? Yes. In other words, they, they fulfilled the law and they offered the sacrifices and the mercy was given not because the blood of the goats and bulls was sufficient, but because it shadowed the blood that would be sufficient. And so, they're, they're getting grace, as it were, backwards from the cross because it's still forward for them. And we're, we're looking backwards to the cross and, and getting mercy flowing from the cross, which is in our past, which makes uh, the blood of goats and bulls unnecessary for us too. Why? Because it never did and it never will satisfy for sins. And that's key because we need a blood that will I mean, there has to be some blood. In fact, he says, uh, he says in another place, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we've got to have some blood. Now, he's ruled out the blood of animals as sufficient. So we're in need of some blood. And yours and I, your and mine can't work because it's already tainted. It's already sinful. So he goes on, verse 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, now this is a quotation from Psalm 40, by the way, 40 uh, verse 6. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Now, they're understanding that Psalm of David as a, as a prophetic word here of Christ himself. In other words, it's David writing the psalm, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is quoting the words, as it were, of, of the Messiah himself. So this is Jesus speaking. When he comes into the world, Jesus says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. He's talking to the Father. But a body, a body you have prepared for me. I need a body. <laughs> you didn't want the sacrifices and offerings. That wasn't the aim, but a body you have prepared for me. So he's, he's given us a hint now. There's an answer. The blood of goats and bulls didn't work. So obviously slaughtering the body of those wasn't, wasn't necessary or sufficient either. But when I came into the world, I said, the offerings and sacrifices you did not want. A body you have given me. I just, this is so, let me just say, this is what the incarnation says to me. When I think about the incarnation, all this is involved. It's, it's miraculous and it should quieten us and send us to our knees at the, at the solemn occasion of God coming to earth and walking among his creation. But this is what's in my mind. Why? 
And why that way? Why was that necessary? Verse 6, he says, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Let me read on. I'll come back to this in a little bit. After saying the above, verse 8, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Then he parentheses here, which, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, then, that's when he said, behold, I have come to do your will. I have come to do your will. Do, do, you, see the, do you see what he's saying there? He takes away the first in order to the establish the second. Then verse 10, by this will, what will? The will that I've come to do, your will. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There you go. The, blood, the, the goats and the bulls didn't do it. And they never did do it. They were shadowing the fact that there was a body going to be needed and the body was going to have to be shedding the blood for the sufficiency or for the atonement of our sins. And, he, and the writer to the Hebrews is quoting the psalm and he says, just after saying that sacrifices and offerings you did not want, then I said, that's when I said, behold, a body you have given me. And then he goes on to say, behold, I have come, verse 9, to do your will. I have come to do your will. The goats and bulls didn't accomplish your will. I have come to do the will. Then he says he takes away the first then, the, blood, the goats and the bulls, in order to establish a second. And by that one, the second one, God's will, giving him a body, by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know... Why did Jesus have to take on human flesh? That's it. Number one, the deity can't die. The wages of sin is death. God is eternal. Christ and his deity is eternal. As I shared Sunday morning, you can't even use the word eternal. He just simply exists. He's, the existence and the nature of that existence is not, time is not applicable to that. Time is a construct for people who are living in time. If you're existing outside of time, it has no relevance to you whatsoever. It doesn't, you didn't have a beginning or an end. That's the deity. So the deity Christ, the, the, the divine Christ cannot die. Number one, he has no sin, but number two, he's eternal. There is no dying. He has no beginning or end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. There is no dying in the divine Christ. And so how could the death be provided? Well, God provides a body for him. And the psalmist foretold it, and Jesus is citing back to the psalm. God has, has this plan, as I shared Sunday morning. It didn't just come up somewhere. It was always in the mind and the purposes and plan of God. So, for lack of a better term, in eternity past, the, it had already been ordained that the second person, the son of the Trinity, would, would be prepared a body which he would take upon himself, and that would be a human body, a human being, the flesh of a human being, and all that's accompanied with that. And that's extraordinary. In Galatians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but I just read this text. Galatians 4, 7 uh, well, back up. 
Let me read from verse 1. Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from the slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also, in the same way, we were, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But then the fullness, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Notice, I read that because you remember what Luke said right before he went into the narrative regarding Jesus at 12? He said, when all had been fulfilled according to the law for him, he went back down to Galilee into his home city, Nazareth. So Jesus is born, uh, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here's, here's the reason I read that. He had to be a human to be born under the law. Uh, animals are not born under the law. Any non-human species or existence are not born under the law. It means under the authority of the law. The wild animals are certainly under the providence and sovereignty of God Almighty, and so are the stars and the universe, but only human beings are born under the law. And, and it had to be a human being born under the law who could, who could live out the law and obey the law to perfection to, to be demonstrated as a sufficient sacrifice. Otherwise, you're sacrificing a defiled lamb or a defiled goat, uh, goat or bull. It'd be the same way as if I went to, cross, to the cross uh, and said, I died for your sins. You would know immediately, well, that can't be. Why? Because I'm as sinful as you are. If I died at all, I died for my own sin. The wages of sin is death. I have sin. I will die. Not for you, but because of my own sin. Now, if Jesus lives perfectly and has no sin and yet dies, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? He had no sin of his own, so he had no wages to reap. The only way he could possibly have died was to take us to himself or to take our humanity, our flesh upon himself and endure for us the consequences due us. You got to be human and under the law, you got to be a human to be under the law. God is not under the law, under the authority of the law. He's the law giver. So Jesus had to be fully human, not partially. This is why I said, I, I, I stress the point so often that I don't believe Jesus was borrowing from his deity to walk in obedience. He had to do that as a man under the law. Complete submission to the Father. No sin to obscure his view of the Father. Doing only what the Father says. Doing it for the glory of God. He could, that's why some people really get stumbling over the idea that, well, how can he be God if he prays to the Father? It's, it's perfectly clear to me. It's because he's praying to the Father as the Son, as the incarnate Christ. He is fully man, and he is subjecting himself to the Father. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says he didn't think that Godhood was something he had to reach for or to hold on to, but he set aside the independent privilege of his deity and subjected himself as a human to the Father and lived his life that way. I've said, to me, that's a huge encouragement because if I'm struggling with temptation, then if I look to Jesus and I say, well, he's God, of course he's not going to be tempted. 
If, if, he's, if he's resisting the temptation of his humanity for, by his deity, that's not a lot of help for me because I don't have the deity. I am a human being. But he wasn't. I think he yielded, he resisted the temptation because he was subject to the Father. All the temptations of the devil were luring him to demonstrate or exercise an independent use of his deity. Command the stones to be bred. That's a deity. Men don't do that. He was luring him. Exercise your deity apart from the Father's will. And I will have accomplished my goal of demonstrating your fallibility, your sinfulness. And what does Jesus respond over and over? Thus it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's submission to the Father. That's the humanity of Christ. Now, that's not independent of Christ. The person Christ the deity of Christ. It's not independent of him in the sense that there's not some being over here with a dividing wall that's acting on his own. But he's not, he's not leaning into his own deity. He's living life as men were supposed to live life. And he's doing it perfectly. You can't be under the law unless you're a human being. And Jesus was a human being. This was even more interesting in Hebrews chapter 5. This really lights my fire. <laughs> Hebrews 5, listen to this. In the days, well, let me begin in verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself. In fact, let me back up to verse 1. For every priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, the one appointed, can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of, it, is he, because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices of sin. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayer and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest, designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. What people stumble at there is he learned obedience. Uh, now, there is a way to learn. Here's, here's one of the things I've said. One, one of the things about the temptations of Christ, in fact, in another place, it says he was tempted in all points just as we are yet without sin. And people say, you mean Jesus was tempted with adultery and, and all those things? I don't think it has to mean that specifically. Here's what, here's to me why his temptations far exceed my own, because my temptations are are basically limited to my understanding of my capacity to attain the thing. I've, I've used this example before. You don't have to tempt me to spend a million dollars because it's, un, it's unobtainable to me. 
I can't even get the credit. I mean, there's no way you could say, Larry, don't you want to spend a million? And I'd say, yeah, right. But if I had 10 million in the bank and you tried to lure me to blow a million on some project, it might become a temptation. Why? Because I have the capacity to do that. Here's why I think the temptation of Christ far exceeds my and your temptation. He has the capacity to do anything if, if he moves away from his humanity and rests and moves to his deity. Because in his deity, he commands the stars into existence. Now, in his humanity, one person now in his humanity, aware of his deity and his right and capacity to command all that he desires and yet not to turn to it, but to be subject to the Father. That's a temptation. That's a temptation. And I got news for you. You and I have never had such temptation as that. I read, this is frightening. In fact, Phyllis, it was the link you sent me. I couldn't find the ark that you sent, but I came across another one. I'd never heard of this. Maybe you have. But it's called BMI Research or BCI. It's Biomechanical Interface. And they are excelling in the experimentation of uniting the human mind with the computer program and the, the computer program is so advanced that it's learning from the human mind. It observes the human, and whenever the human raises their hand, the brain fires a certain place, the computer logs it. This is what causes that to happen. This is what causes, and they, they've done such extensive research that in early tests now on mice, they are able, by these probes that they've mounted in the mice's brain with a computer, uh, with a keyboard, to make the mice move his tail whenever they want to. The, mice can, the mouse can be sitting there just as quiet as he can and they program, move your tail. The mouse moves his tail. Here's the amazing thing. Because they're firing the brain to move it, the mouse thinks he meant to move it. And I thought to myself, babble. I thought to myself, put that kind of manipulative power in the hands of men. Tell them that you can do this and what man could resent the temptation? Now, if you told him that 50 years ago, he'd laugh at you and it wouldn't even be a temptation for him. But now we're saying we have the capacity. Would you like to do it? The temptation would be great. How much greater would the temptation of Christ be? In all points tempted just as we are. Yet he didn't sin. Not one moment did he give in to exercising his ability to achieve and to grasp or to take whatever it was he wanted or to produce whatever he wanted. As a human, as the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, he walked in subjection to the Father, demonstrating for us what perfection under the law looked like, what sinlessness looked like. That's Jesus. In the passage I read in Galatians, in the fullness of time, that Jesus came to this earth because only that Jesus could redeem us from our sin. So he learned that obedience. Back to that passage, he learned that obedience. It doesn't, we learn obedience sometimes by sinning and by discipline, and we learn that don't want to do that. I sin, he disciplines me, lesson, don't do that again. 
uh, and on and on. So we learn obedience in that sense. But the context that he's using this here, and even the very word he uses, I was reading in one commentary, suggests the, the process by which we learn, I even said it this way in my mind, we learn the cost of obedience. Uh, Paul says we rejoice in our tribulations because tribulations produce character and character perseverance and perseverance hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured abroad in our hearts. Well, he's not talking about sin. He's talking about suffering, teaching as it were. We're learning obedience. We're learning what it costs to be obedient and submissive and subjective to the word and the law of God and to God himself by the sufferings in our lives. And I think that's the context here. Jesus knew what obedience was. He knows everything in his deity. But what the deity never had was human flesh or uh, an agenda to walk in human flesh subject to the, to the law or to the Father and in a human, in a fallen world where the elements were there. Can you imagine Christ in the incarnation, aware of his deity, never once having a need, never once thirsting, never once hungry, and all of a sudden in the incarnation as a little baby, whenever the milk is desired and the stomach begins to, to, to groan and the baby feels hungry for the first time. Now in his humanity, he's the baby, but he's still Jesus and he's never known hunger. And now it seems he's knowing hunger in the sense of experience. And not that he doesn't know it, but it's experience. It's an experience that he's having now. He is walking in the fullness of human flesh. He is a man, fully man, which means hunger and weariness and, and, and exhaustion and emotion and sadness and grief and all, all the things that we experience as human beings. That's the incarnation. That's what's happening when God is coming to earth and taking upon himself human flesh. I've already read Matthew or Hebrews 10, the high priestly function there in regards to the sacrifice, I think. Yeah, already did. Uh, Hebrews 4.15, by the way, was the passage in regards to tempting at all points just as we are. Uh, uh, Hebrews 2.10 mentions there the perf he is perfected in suffering. That's where I'm getting the comments that I just made. For it was fitting for him for whom all are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Perfect there don't mean to make him perfect in the way that we normally, the perfect there means to complete. In other words, it was feeding for him to, to make the cycle complete in regards to his obedience through the suffering. That completed the cycle through suffering because in suffering is where he experienced I think where the temptation also would have been to relieve the suffering uh, under those circumstances, but he, but he remained subject to the Father in his humanity, and he didn't resort to his deity to relieve the suffering. What did he do? He trusted in the Father. Trusted in the Father. I mean, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the tears and the, and the sweating, as it were, drops of blood and the, and the struggle there, as it were. And finally concluding in, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Subjection to the Father there. And so he's perfected or he made him complete through the, through the suffering because the suffering brought every, 
every armament, as it were, against his subjection to the Father. Yet he did not sin. He did not relent one moment in subjecting himself to the Father. I'm convinced that even the things, I read this today and, and, and generally I agree with it. And if you would have said it to me yesterday, I would have said, yeah, that's right. Uh, but I hear this a lot and have as I thought about this in the past. Well, in the New Testament, sometimes he acts in his deity and sometimes he acts in his, in his humanity. And I've always kind of ascribed, well, that seems reasonable because, I mean, sometimes he says, peace be still and the seas calm. And we say, that's his deity right there. But what I'm suggesting is that he was operating in his humanity subject to the Father. And whenever he said, peace be still, and he calmed the sea, it's because the Father had communicated to him that that's what was about to be accomplished. In fact, Jesus says, you will do greater things than these when I go to the Father. He's demonstrating that subjection to the Father to perfection means there is a communion with the Father and I do only those things which I see Him doing. And in that circumstance, I saw the Father wanted to calm the sea. So I spoke the words of the Father and the sea was calmed. I think He did that. In, in his humanity subject to the Father. I think that at all that he did throughout his incarnation, all the way to the cross, all the way to the cross was in subjection to the Father because that's what perfect obedience looks like and that's the only thing that qualifies him as a sacrifice for you. If he's anything less than that, then he's insufficient as a sacrifice for you because he has his own sin to atone for. He did not. Do you realize how extraordinary that is? And all the more if you say, and he is not that sinner, not because he is deity, but because his, he is flesh and he is perfectly obedient to the Father. He earned, as it were, that sinless life by his subjection to the Father and his devotion to the Father. Not once would he be moved away from following and yielding to the Father. So in John 17, he says, Father, glorify me now as I have glorified you on the earth. How? I have glorified you by doing all that you have sent me to accomplish. I have accomplished everything that you have sent me here to do. That is my glorifying you on this earth. Now glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. I'm going back to glory. I came here to glorify you. How did I do it? Through perfect flawless obedience all the way to the cross. That's what Philippians 2 is saying. He took upon himself human flesh and he, and he submitted as it were even unto death, even the death of the cross. This is why it says God hath highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow things in heaven on earth and under the earth and declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he demonstrated that perfection of obedience all the way setting aside his independent privilege of his deity and taking upon himself the form of a servant and dying, submitting to the, even the death of, at the hands of sinners all the way to the very point of death. That's why he's highly exalted. And that's why he's your savior. That's why he can be. If he's not that, he cannot be your savior. And if he cannot be your savior, there's no other blood, there's no other body which can be substituted for you. I say this sometimes to young people, but young people, your mom and dad can't be substitutes for you. 
Your grandma and grandpa can't. Congregations, your preachers and your elders and your deacons can't be substitutes for you. Husbands, your wives can't be a substitute for you. Wives, your husbands can't be substitutes for you. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man. Notice the writer says that, emphasizes it. That is the man, Christ Jesus. That's the only body. It's the only body, and it's the only blood. The blood of the goats and bulls have been poured out to the bridles of horses for millennium. Not because they were sufficient, because they were, but because they were pointing towards the blood that would be sufficient. And that's the only blood, and that's the only body, and the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. And that's Christ. And see, to me, what's striking about that is that makes the incarnation make sense. God doesn't do things haphazardly. He didn't just come to earth in human flesh and just for the purpose of saying, wasn't that something? There was a reason for that. And you talk about my favorite, one of my favorite verse, 1 John, uh, 1 John 3, 1 and 2. Behold what manner of love the Father has for us, that we would be called children of God. You want to know what manner of love it is? Look at the incarnation. Look at the life and sufferings of Christ. Not segregated in his person. He was Christ even as he was subjecting himself in his humanity to the Father. He knew every prerogative he had in his deity and he refused to exercise them independent of the Father. He was yielded wholly to the Father always all the way to the very end of his life. That is the manner in which he loved us. That's... That's what the writer John is saying. Behold it. Look at that. And then John goes on as the, my favorite part of the verse. John goes on and says, we, we don't know yet. We don't have a clue what we're going to be. But we know one thing. When we see that one, we're going to be like him. So glorious is that going to be to see that one. That it would be instantaneously transformative to our life. All the sanctification that had been incrementally going on through all the years will in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, be accomplished. And we will be perfect reflectors of that very glory. Here's something that was interesting to me as I thought about hypostatic union in terms of our union with Christ. And why this is important to get that doctrine right. Because if you don't get that right, and we're united to Christ, does that mean... Uh, our, our, our persons get mingled up. Do we become a God? Does he become a human? When we're united to Christ, we are, we are in that hypostatic union. There, there are two people. There are two individuals there. There's a union there. And we will never be Christ. And Christ will never be us. We will be united to him. And he will be in the fullness of his deity in that relationship. And he's brought us to himself I think united us to himself even before the cross, which is why, by the way, you can stand with me, but which is why you can never be separated from him. Because if you did, if you could be, you'd be undoing the work of the cross. In other words, if he, if I took you, if I was Christ and I took you to the cross with me and somehow shielded you and, and you died with me, but you didn't really understood that you died because I endured all the pain and all the guilt and all the sorrow and all the horror of it. And I took you down into death and raised you back up with me and I joined you to that. And somebody came along and said, give me him back. I mean, I would say, I can't. He's, he's a part of me. 
We died together and we're risen together. We live our lives in union with one another. To take Him would be to undo everything I did on the cross. And to do that would be to defy the very purpose and plan and glory of God Himself. Therefore, Paul says, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. No one. Ever, ever, ever. Because no one can diminish the merit of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. Just a fascinating passage of Scripture. And for me, so illuminating in regards. I read one author that said this. The humanity of Jesus is equally critical to his deity. And you'll find people that go back and forth. You'll have one that kind of diminishes deity and they're all about servanthood and loving one another and they're doing all these things. They diminish his deity and all they're left with is humanity of Jesus. They look in the Bible, they see how he acted out his humanity and they say, that's the way humans ought to act. So I'm going to go out and do that. Well, they're forgetting that he's God. And then you have others that concentrate on the deity of, of Christ and they, they really rob themselves of the, of the ministry of the life of Christ lived in obedience. The example and the encouragement he gives us to live as human beings subjected to the will of the Father. So they rob themselves of a critical instrument in their own sanctification. So be careful to hold those two things in tension, even if you and I in our finite minds cannot comprehend the depth and the riches of the wisdom, as Paul says, the, the profound nature of that all. It's a reality, and it's borne out in the Scriptures. Whether or not I can explain it really is somewhat unimportant to me. The fact that it is means everything. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the incarnation the submissive, obedient life of Jesus upon the earth. Lord, not only is it an example for, for us in regards to enduring temptations and to remaining faithful even in the most difficult of times, it certainly is an example, but it's so much more than that. It is necessary. It is necessary to our very salvation. I was thinking today, Father, if it weren't for the incarnation and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this would be all we had. We'd live out our lives and do our thing and enjoy what little things we could and, and die. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Bless those who've come tonight, Lord. I pray that their hearts and minds have been engaged to reflect more fully on the glory of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord, I pray that I've honored your word and spoken truthfully, truthfully in regards to it for your sake, for your name's glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.